On this episode in our CrowdCrate Insight series, I'm joined by Miko Matsumura, the general partner from Gumi Ventures, a board member of Celsius Network and Zilliqa Capital. He also is a limited partner of Pantera Capital and the founder of a cryptocurrency exchange, Evercoin. He's one of the smartest people we've had on the show, and I'm delighted to have Miko as a returning guest. Gumi Ventures has been an early investor behind many of the most talked about crypto projects, such as OpenSea that raised 100 million at a 1.5 billion valuation, Yield Guild Games that just raised 12.5 million in just 30 seconds, and OneInch. Learn why the play to earn model is tapping into a new audience in crypto with startups like Axie Infinity. Get ready to have your mind blown as Miko shares the secrets behind these unicorns, or as Miko refers to them as Gumicorns. Appreciate that. That's very that's very kind of you. And you know, to me, like that's been sort of my life's work is to generate enthusiasm and passion for complex emerging topics and to sort of help uh, bring them into you know existence. So that that's kind of what I'm doing now in the venture world. But you know, I, I do think it's been you know, ever since I started at Sun Microsystems, like evangelizing the Java programming language and platform, you know, <laughs> like it's it's been about sort of uh, really just sinking into these complex emerging technologies, you know, and, and helping, helping, you know, bring them forward and, you know, helping people sort of sort out what's meaningful and what's sort of like more like noise. Wow. And you can, you have the insight because you've been there. I mean, with Java, you've seen the almost the evolution of the web and now we're entering web 3.0. It's like you, you've seen it all. You've literally seen it. You've invested in it along the way and you still continue to be, you know, active in it. Uh, yeah. Thanks for that characterization. You know, I definitely, uh, one of the things that's nice about, uh, you know, getting getting a little gray hair is that like, you know, you can definitely get the compounding benefits from all of the mistakes that you've made and the part <laughs> thing, the things that you've seen that didn't work. And, you know, so in a sense, like, you know, I, ideally, we kind of learn and come back smarter. You know, that's sort of the that's the dream, you know, so I, I think that that that's really been a, a lifelong philosophy is to, you know, just try to improve if possible. Yeah, just like this never-ending constant improvement um you know mika thanks for I thanks mean, for being it, that inspiration i it, i mean it can be it it's to be honest like it there's there's sort of a painfulness associated with it so i i don't want to pretend that it's that it's filled with ease right because in a sense you kind of frequently have to unlearn things you know and if you practice something over and over and try to polish it and improve it and then at some point you realize that you're just completely doing it wrong, right? Then you pretty much have to tear it down and, and build it from scratch, you know? So like it definitely, you it, there's a kind of a profound letting go process when your old models prove themselves to be just that, right? They prove to be models. They don't prove to be uh, prescient or real, right? So it's, it's sort of a process of re tearing down and reinventing that kind of fits with the ethos of Silicon Valley yeah. of creative destruction, you know, and in a sense, it's so interesting because, you know, the Zen of it is that yes, you're kind of destroying things that you've lovingly built over decades. Right. But, but the Zen of it is that that's not you, right? So even though you worked on it, 
it's impermanent. So like, you know, you, you, you just, the world will tell you when something <laughs> that you built needs to be torn down, you know, and, and a lot of times it's just your ideas and, and it's, you know, but people, people these days take their own ideas so seriously. Like they, they, you know, I think that it is very important for people to have sort of a, you know, strong beliefs that are kind of loosely held, right? So in a way, it allows them to engage in the discourse of ideas vigorously, right? So that they can really strongly debate and, you know, try to make their their points. But at the same time, you know, I think that they have to be willing to be wrong and they have to be willing. And to me, the intellectual honesty of admitting when you're when you're wrong is 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 valuable. And I think it has to you know, it creates sort of a humility and there's a pain that comes with it too, which, you know, cause, cause in a way we want to be right all the time and, you know, yeah. we want to be, <laughs> uh, you know, uh, and that, that's, that's, that's tough. No, I think, I think that's a, I mean, for me as an entrepreneur myself, it's, it's having the drive to move in the forward direction, but then open the feedback. And I, you know, you're right. No one likes to be told no one likes to be told they're wrong, especially when you're on the cutting edge of something. I mean, you talk to some of these like upcoming DeFi or blockchain projects and, you know, they're such visionaries and they don't like to be told. But then the reality is, you know, the community is also stronger than before. And the feedback from community members could make or break. Yeah, I'm just seeing more and more projects and more people I talk to. The founder's story, they're, they're so passionate, so driven, but they have this like level of humility where, Hey, you know, I could be doing it. I mean, this is a really like rudimentary example, but hey, not on Ethereum, but maybe on Polygon, something as simple as this. And it could be a massive game changer. And just almost alluding to what's going on with uh, OpenSea, I wanted to, to bring that up because not only, you know, you're an investor in it and they just recently announced their latest, I believe it's a Series B round, uh, making massive headlines, both from the raise itself, but they're also... Uh, kind of breaking some grounds on the career side. I'm, I'm hearing from a lot of my personal networks like, hey, I want to work at OpenSea. Like, that's cool. And so, yeah, I wanted to hear from your point of view what you've seen and, and where you think it's going to go. Uh, it's been a super gratifying process, right? Because we have this idea in our fund and we call these founders like gummy corn founders right and gummy corn <laughs> yeah. like and it's non quantitative right what i mean by that is that you know we've invested in like multiple first time founder and venture back founder ceos right and and so fo folks that are not kind of serial entrepreneurs we've also invested in like you know the celsius alex mashinsky's you know the sort of billionaire kind of success story people right so we have these or like for example like an agoric where we have a team that's been working on this class of problems in smart contracts since before blockchain and by the way yes there were smart contracts before blockchains right so like these are this is incredibly you know so there's some teams that are like brand squeaky new and there's ones that are like super seasoned you know but they're all gummy corns and when i say they're all gummy corn founders the thing that is gratifying to me is like you know obviously there's this game that is the economy right and when we have a scoreboard right then you know the recent valuation of OpenSea in this round was 1.5 billion right so 
OpenSea is a unicorn, right? So now it's a unicorn, which is more of a quantitative measurement. But to me, when we talk about Gumi corns, like we're really talking about someone who's basically already all that, you know, right? And 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 they're they begin as that, right? And what I mean by they begin is that obviously they go through their own journeys to get to, you know, be be a part of a you know our. Uh, conviction and our, you know, Gumi family. But like, you know, for us, we definitely are seeking out those, those remarkable, you know, individuals. So, so, you know, I, I definitely, you know, I met Alex and Devin, uh, you know, in our uh, San Francisco meetup and, you know, I read the story. <laughs> yeah, Fascinating. absolutely. So, so, you know, it's, it's so interesting, but I would say that for us, the leadership of my partner, uh, Hiro in Japan he actually published. Uh, he he acquired a majority of Double Jump Tokyo, which publishes My Crypto Heroes, and through that experience with his game company, he became really impassioned about the NFT potential. And this was kind of really wildly early, right? Because you know, uh, My Crypto Heroes was kind of like sort of immediately post Crypto Kitties, right? It's sort of this. That was one of the early of ones. Yeah, like what if what if an NFT, you know, game was more than collection but had more game mechanics, right? So that was their uh, thesis on My Crypto Heroes. It became very popular, uh, you know, within the you know top top two Ethereum game in that era. But I would say that, you know, because of his knowledge and passion, you know, we were able to convince them to allow us to sort of lead an early strategic round. You know, which uh, you know was was I think really uh, super gratifying for us, right? Because you know it's very clear that these were kind of Gumi Corn founders, you know, uh, kind of out of the box. Because in a way, they 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 have to embody this sort of boldness of character, and you know, but also just incredible work ethic. And you know, there's so many qualities that I think are just incredibly admirable. When you say gratifying. I mean, this could be many things for many people, you know, financial, financial gains. It could be, you know, watching the story. What is it to you, Nico? Yeah, I mean, to me, like, you know, it, it, it there's it has to really be about the people and the stories. Right. So in a way, the thing that is so interesting is kind of inclusion Right. Because ultimately, the entrepreneur's journey is the hero's journey. Right. So the question then becomes like, you know, what is what is the role that a person can play? Right. So if you if you actually study the uh, hero's journey, right, which is, you know, a very specific construct that, you know, recurs uh, in, in literature. Right. There's a very specific sequence of, of action. Right. So the question becomes, you know, what what you know, where are you in that journey? Right. So in essence, like the entrepreneur is is kind of without a doubt the hero of the hero's journey. You know, so in a sense, what happens at, at decisive moments is, you know, that someone in a venture capital role can play the role of something like divine you know, assistance or can play, you know, the, <laughs> yeah. can play maybe a role of like, a, you know, like a, like Obi-Wan Kenobi type of role or, you know, it's a different times or like a Yoda or something. Yeah. You know? So different times, you know, you can be, you can embody different 
roles within these heroic journeys, right? So, so you know, in a way, uh, you know, it's it's about a person's sort of self-actualization and self-realization, you know, and I think that that journey is is really that's what that's what is the most gratifying is really being a part of all of these adventures, right? And in in a way, you know, earning you know, earning the right to be invited on other adventures, you know, based on your behavior on on the ones that you've been invited to. I like that. I like that analogy. And I also compared to like because I recently watched your Miko bits and I know this is something you're always open with. It's always, you know, what problem are you solving? And it's almost like that adventure story where, you know, the founder, in, like he just takes in this, this journey, this personal, like he makes that problem solving his own personal journey. He internalizes and he creates a team, a company around that. It's so, it's so fascinating because you always open with this. What problem are you solving? And it's like intrinsic, intrinsically, they have, they're like, I'm, I'm solving these three things or I'm solving this one thing. It's so, <laughs> it's like, it's just so ingrained into them that they are solving this problem. And to me, that's the most fascinating thing about founders. It's just like, they are so driven to solve something. Oh, and I'm, I'm super excited to ask that question. I'm really glad that you pick up on that as being my opener because it absolutely is the beating heart of like everything that we're doing, right? Which is that, you know, the world is unfortunately as it is like full of problems, right? So, you know, in essence, like the meaning behind all of our actions should be to reduce the number of problems in the world if we can, right? So then, then the question becomes, you know, okay, like what problem do you solve? And to me, one of the things that's incredibly subtle about asking a question like that is that um, the very specific language of the description of the problem almost gives you an idea of the likelihood of the problem solution being kind of the, I guess, winner is maybe a good word for it, right? Because the thing that I think is complicated becomes, you know, in some ways, it, it's the embodiment of the problem definition, which establishes the mindset. So I'll give you an example that's trivial, right? Which is, let's say that you go outside, your lawnmower doesn't start, and you're like, the you know, the, the problem is, is I need to get gas for this lawnmower, right? And so you go and you get gas, and then you come back to the lawnmower, right? So that would be fine, except that it's an electric lawnmower, <laughs> right? So, so what I'm trying to say is I'm trying to say that like the very specific mindset around the question of what's a problem, what is the problem, right? So, you know, the thing that's so subtle and amazing is that, you know, language is so filled with nuance, right? So if one per every single person will describe the same problem in a different way, and the question becomes like, what's the most powerful way to describe a problem? <laughs> it's, right? like and, it's like telephones. <laughs> yeah, if you can find a super powerful way to describe a problem, then the solution becomes really interesting, right? Like, for example, there was a... a I think it was DeWalt or it was some it was some power tool company, right? And the the CEO said something just weirdly zen, you know, which is <laughs> they said they said the customer doesn't hire us for drills, the customer hires us for holes. 
<laughs> right? Which, which I thought was, I'm not sure how that impacted how they operated their business, but like, but it was such a funny concept, right? Because it's basically like, you know, the drill is just a means to an end, right? Like what people want are holes, right? So, you know, so, so if you think that way, then all of a sudden you could invent a new kind of drill or you could invent a new thing that maybe isn't a drill, but makes holes. Or like maybe you can find a new market where holes are needed, but the holes aren't produced by a drill. So it's sort of like, oh, that's interesting. Maybe the company now like digs holes using a steam shovel. I mean, maybe that's why he came up with that idea or I don't know. But I mean, it's to me, like it's just an example of a, a weird example of someone who's sort of just trying to define a problem in a novel way. And hence that that novel way of describing it almost defines their business model. It's like, a, well, and it, and it fixes their mindset. Right. So, you know, know, if they're right. So their mindset is, oh, I, I need to get gas for my lawnmower. Right. So it's sort of like, wow, like you're going to spend a whole bunch of time and runway, you know, trying to solve a problem that actually isn't, it isn't an actual problem. It's not a real problem. So it's sort of like, wow. I mean, this, this method isn't infallible. And I'll tell you why it isn't infallible is, is that some entrepreneurs are, are just next level brilliant about solving these epically broadly scoped horizontal platform problems, but they're inarticulate about like the initial traction vertical, right? So for example, uh, when I, I, when I read the Ethereum white paper, you know, it, it said that the problem was basically that we don't have a world computer. Right. And I wasn't able to resonate with that. Like I was like, <laughs> I was like, I don't, I don't see a bunch of angry people running around demanding a world computer, you know? And so like, I was just kind of like, I, you know, that one, that one, I struggled like Bitcoin was not a struggle, right? Because Bitcoin was like, <clears throat> I'll tell you what the problem is, is the problem is, is if you want to eliminate the trusted intermediary, then you need to solve you know, effectively this Byzantine generals problem, right? You need to solve the problem of how do you move trusted data across an untrusted fabric, right? And then the Bitcoin white paper was like, and you do it like this. So it was sort of like jaw dropping. It was like, it yeah. was like, it's like, oh, it's like, it's like, oh, we would like to solve this problem and here's the solution. And it was just kind of like, oh, wow, okay. Like it's that's, that, it's that's amazing. That's amazing. Yeah. And obviously like, you know, Satoshi alluded to kind of economic problems, like things like peer to peer electronic cash and things like that, that would result from the technical solution. Right. But in a way, at least it was a fairly unambitious problem, which is, it was basically a technical problem. Right. But then the implications were kind of potential, potentially kind of immediately uh, interesting things like payments and things. So, you know, online and digital payment. But I, I guess what I would say is I'm, I'm trying to say that this method isn't infallible because, you know, there's several possibilities. One of which is that there's a founder who's unbelievably good at solving problems, but inarticulate about describing what they're doing, you know, or, or that they are solving problems at such a deep level that there aren't any people who are, angrily demanding a solution, you know, but in, if you kind of, you know, look down the road at things like Ethereum DeFi, you know, like the problem, like basically the problem that Bitcoin solves is that you can't trust governments not to print money. Mm -hmm, right. Mm -hmm. And the problem that Ethereum solves is you can't trust banks not to hoard all the wealth for themselves. Right. So, so, so it's sort of like, 
okay, yeah, if you you know if you had written that in the white paper, I would have been a lot faster to to, to buy it. But, you know, it's funny you know, that it, the way you explain it, it's almost like because a lot of these big, I guess, unicorns, you could say, a lot of these unicorns, yeah, the moment they nailed that messaging, like all of a sudden social traction kicks in. Like for example, I'm just thinking off the top of my head, but Celsius. So Celsius, mm -hmm. Alex Mashinsky, awesome team. They've they've been they've been they've been pushing for a very very long time. But I, I believe it's around when they when they came off the tagline, you know, unbank, unbank, you know, unbank the bankless, or they came up with these like really really clever taglines, and it just started picking up on like social media, and it was just, yeah yeah yeah. It was the that one was unbank yourself, right? Unbank Which yourself, yeah. I remember they had a shirt. Really good. And it's like, then the everyday people kind of just latched on like, oh, wow, like, is that even possible? And that's when they just started the floodgates. And I even think with like, even on, on the on the gaming side, you know, like Yield, Yield Guild Games and Axel, and, and like they, the moment they started to get that messaging right and kind of solve that problem in a really eloquent but understandable way, it was like the world Ye caught on. Yield Guild is just shocking and it's shocking so for those of you who don't know uh go ahead and uh search youtube for play <laughs> to earn documentary right uh or you could oh, just look one. for yield guild games but like the thing that is shocking about it is that i'm always thinking about what i call heaven and earth right and heaven is kind of more speculative and this is kind of like amazing technology future that we're driving towards right so yield guild has this heavenly concept of like the metaverse economy right so it's sort of this very you know uh a kind of big vision future wow it's amazingly futuristic right but but if you want to talk about Earth, like the thing that's so amazing is what is the problem that they're solving, right, for their users? And, you know, they're solving the problem of, oh, the COVID pandemic hit my community really hard and I lost my job and I'm unable to feed my family. Right. That's very, that's it's sort of real like, as it it's like, it's yeah. like, oh, wow. Like yeah. it's like, it is, you know, and, and so that if you solve a problem that's that meaningful, like, you will just you'll people will beat a path to your door right like like oh oh you're recruiting gamers that don't know anything about crypto like how are they going to use like a uniswap to get get their coins out <laughs> of like you know ronin it's like it's like those people are just going to do whatever right they're going to do anything because they just need to learn how to do it right and you know to me part of it is just communicating that it's you can do it right so in a sense there's this huge network effect because the the scholars the axi scholars are they're all just their word of mouth right they're yeah. like you won't believe how i'm making my, my money you know like i my I, living I stopped, right it's crazy yeah i stopped driving a taxi i'm driving an axi you know and and like <laughs> you need to get in here you know and so they're they're recruiting their friends the growth is exponential like i think last month's axi revenue alone was like i think it was 85 million dollars monthly revenue you know just on axi right so that you know axi axi if axi were a public it were a company it could go public on that revenue right like that's a that's a that's a unicorn ipo you know uh, yeah. but uh, obviously axi is is a privately held token economy so it's it's different but like you know it's super healthy you know and and so for me i think what you're pointing at is yes 
it is a lot about the nuances of communication and identification of the core proposition and problem, right? And and going back to like Celsius, like, you know, you're right. They've been really wonderful about giving people very strong uh, memes, right? I think HODL is a big thing. Oh, they had right? a HODL t-shirts, right? Yeah. They have banks are not your friends. That was a good one. They have like <laughs> unbank yourself. That's another one. And so like, they definitely have been doing a lovely job kind of just propagating. But the other thing that I think is so interesting about something like a Celsius is that I have a friend who is just over the moon about Celsius and he just keeps thanking me and like, you know, giving me all these like uh, great accolades. Right. And it turns out that at some point I recommended that he check out Celsius, right. Which I don't even oh, remember. Okay. But what happened was, was this friend had kind of like, he lost his job right during the COVID. And then like, he was basically paying everything with yield with Celsius yield. Like he, wow. he was just earning, he was just earning yield. He was hunkered down and he just said that it was the greatest peace of mind, right? Which is like every Monday Celsius would deliver yield and he would just be like, there's my rent. Like there's my groceries. That's going to feed my kid. That's going to, you know, and so his, he just was, he just attained this peace of mind, you know, and in a way that was kind of this gift and this really invaluable, uh, life-changing event. Right. So, so, you know, it's, it, when we talk about like problems, like those are material problems. Like yeah. people have, this world isn't without material problems. Like people have big problems and, and, you know, it's, it's super vital that, you know, people produce, you know, effort that to, to solve some of these real problems, you know, and that, that's kind of how it has to work. I like that. And that, that kind of leads me to my next point is about like, let's say DeFi and yield farming. It's, it's become a popular topic amongst entrepreneurs who like to make their money work for them because it literally, it literally works for them. <laughs> but it's also uh, opening up a lot of doors to the general consumer, kind of like what you're saying, you know, your friend that you introduced Celsius to is that now crypto is not just, you know, not, you're just not investing in some like cutting edge technology, but it's yielding, you know, more than traditional banks, you know, in many cases, we're even working with a company that's providing insurance for yield farming. So not only is there like a security portion of it, which is, I don't know why it took so long to come, but it's, it's here now and companies are making it, but people are starting to change their view on crypto and not just say, hey, why isn't Bitcoin being used at Starbucks, right? Now, now that the conversation is quickly changing and it's, I'd love to hear from your side, like, what are you, what are you seeing right now? What, what is so exciting? And I know you just talked with Balancer uh, Jeremy and like, what is, yeah. what do you think's next on that horizon? Yeah. If you can check out the balancer interview on the Miko bits show, it's definitely one of my favorites. Cause it turns out that Jeremy is a Muay Thai kickboxer. Right. <laughs> and so he, he, what he talked about is he talked about two things. He talked about for the first thing he talked about was taking a punch. Right. Which is just how you take a punch, you know, and that's really interesting. Right. And then the second thing he talked about is once you've taken enough punches, like how do you gain the confidence that you can recover? 
right? Mm. Because that's that, you know, because in a way you take a punch and then you take another punch, right? So in a sense, like he's really looking at things that way. And and that was really amazing. Uh, you know, to answer your question directly about, uh, you know, what am I excited about? Like, to me, the thing that is so exciting is the arc of history that we're on, right? And I, I'm borrowing from liberally from the words of uh, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., who said that the arc of history is long, but it bends towards justice, right? And so the, the assertion relates directly to this emergence of the ethos and culture of open source software, right? And how it produces, it solves problems of, of human freedom. Right. I think uh, Meta Kovan, the purchaser of the sixty nine million dollar people art, uh, you know, he actually uh, said that that crypto is the new America. <laughs> right. I, I saw so, that. I saw that. Such a great quote. It's such a qu great quote, because what he really is alluding to is he's alluding to, in my mind, uh, he's alluding to this idea that that it represents this kind of freedom. Right. So the question becomes like, what is the source? What powers that freedom? And I, I boldly assert that what powers the freedom that comes from the blockchain is really uh, the competition for the consent of the governed. Right. Uh, and, and how do you get the consent of the governed? You get the consent of the governed through inclusion. Right. Mm. So that's that's what's happening. Right. So what I mean by inclusion, the most important form of inclusion is ownership. Obviously, governance rights are important. But, you know, because, you know, the the whole principle is that people want to enter lawful systems. Right. And they want to give their consent, but they also want other things that that culminate in their freedom, which is that that they want the ability to withdraw their consent at any time for any reason or for no reason whatsoever. But what they also want is they want a switching cost that is low and they want a viable, equal or better place to go, right? Which is if you don't have all of those preconditions, you're not free, right? So the question becomes, well, how does this relate? For example, if we're building an alternative financial system, the alternative even provides freedom to the people who are in the traditional system mm -hmm. because it gives them an equal or better place to go if they ever get sick of the system they're in, right? Uh, or if it's serving them well, that's fine. But the other thing that it does is it, applies competitive pressure against the traditional financial system, right? It's never so, happened so, before. Like that that's never existed before. It's been a monopoly, now. right? Yep. Absolutely. So I think the the concern is that if you don't have like if you're in a bad relationship and you have no safe alternative place to go, you're screwed. Like you're not free, right? You're you're stuck and and that is awful. That is bad, right? And now I'm not saying that everyone in the traditional financial system is having an abusive relationship. Like some people are not. Some people are in the traditional financial system. It's serving them beautifully. Like, okay. You know, and, and like, you know, some people are questioning whether even that's okay. 
right? Because they're because they're like, well, Jeff Bezos is in space, you know, like they're definitely people who are like, you know, why don't you stay? I think uh, it was Tulsi Gabbard, like, like why don't you stay in space? Like, you know, we why don't you just not ever come back? You know, there's a petition, whatever, right? There's so, a petition for yes. that too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's so. a petition so that he doesn't ever come back. I mean, it's, I, uh, you know, I'm thinking, I'm thinking that that petition doesn't really have much authority but i would say that the following is what i'm asserting is is that what excites me is that open source the ability to fork a system and go right like fork it and go like that's that's anyone's prerogative right obviously you need some developer talent or whatever but you know we're talking about massive economic stakes right so like you know, if there's billions of dollars of economic stakes in a system and, and any participant is a significantly uh, disadvantaged in that system, right, they will create a movement, right? That movement will gain enough economic power, enough developer power and enough consent, right, that they can fork it and go. And so the in a way, uh, open source is sort of nonviolent and it, it basically because it involves what I call day one preemptive unilateral disarmament, right? Which is that open source is saying, <laughs> I ha A, I have no weapons. B, all of the weapons I created are on the table and yeah, you can you pick can them it. up. Like you can pick up the weapons. I don't have the weapons. Like I made them, but you are the one that can use the weapons for whatever you want to use them or tools or whatever, however yeah. you want to use these. Like, I'm not controlling them or you. I cannot. I've, I've yielded my ability to, to control or manipulate or coerce or, you know, like, so it's, that's, that's the, the inherently unilateral and intrinsically nonviolent nature of open source, right? And so, you know, all open source has to do is it has to compete for the consent of the governed. Right. And so it, it, because of that and the other thing that it does that's amazing is it forces competition on those terms with proprietary systems. Right. So it forces proprietary systems to also compete for consent. So traditional finance has to compete with Celsius and traditional finance has to up their game and produce more yield. Or people will just leave. People will be like people like my friend will be like, uh, let me let me think about this. No yield here, yield over here. Yeah, or neg wow. like negligible amounts of yield here. Absolutely, and yield here. Absolutely. Yeah, so and, and so that. Yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm kind of following your story, and it's kind of it's very similar to hey, we're forking the entire financial system in an open source forking, way. Yeah. So it's almost like because I always hear these like analogies. You know, Bitcoin is the new gold, or you know, I want to use money. Why can't I use cryptocurrency at Starbucks? But in reality. It's much bigger than that. You're you're creating a secondary or a competitor to your existing financial market that just has not ever existed. Correct. 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 So so when I say when I say because the thing that is really there's several different layers of the base yield that Celsius generates, right? One of the base yield layers is super simple, which is government money printing, right? So the you know that's that's just Bitcoin yield. So that comes for free almost, right? But then if you start thinking about additional forms of yield, think about the bank extraction, right? So the bank shareholders get the profits from the bank depositors, right? So the bank customers are basically giving up yield to bank owners, 
right? So the thing that becomes super interesting from the perspective of consent is if you look at the bank of Bitcoin, like every user is an owner, right? Like, yeah, like yeah. every, you know, so, so in a sense, this reserve bank is a reserve bank full of owners and there's no user that's not an owner because it's, it's, mathematically and physically impossible to to use bitcoin without becoming an owner i mean you know so so i think i think uh that's the mood right so so in a sense you know would people consent to use that well i mean one of the things that has has been happening is is that the consensus algorithm has pr been producing a consensus reality and what mm -hmm. I mean is, is that like, uh, if you go, if you just go onto the internet, you'll realize that consensus reality is something that's very scarce and hard to produce, right? Because people can't even agree that like a uh, global pandemic that's killing people is like real. <laughs> oh. Like people can't even agree that okay. that's real, right? Yeah, like, so, so <laughs> it's, it's amazing. And so, so, you know, the, the issue becomes like, if, if, so how do we produce a consensus reality, right? And and the thing that's so interesting is is that apparently a decentralized machine adjudicated system can produce a faithful transaction log, you know, from which there are zero transactions that anyone can credibly point to and say that's not an accurate historical record of what happened, right? And I think if you look at it from that lens, mm. then more and more and more people should come because they're being treated fairly, right? They're being treated fairly by the system. Now, they might not like the outcome of certain transactions, right? Like, you know, people are absolutely able to, you know, get you to send them Bitcoin and, and, you know, there are all kinds of weird things that happen, yeah. but the laws of Bitcoin are, are what they are. So like, you know, it's a, it's absolutely a faithful transaction history of, of exactly what, what, you know, the transactions that occurred according to the rules. I love it. I can, we kind of unpacked it from like a philosophical perspective and a political perspective. Um, Miko, every time I have a chat with you, I feel like we always go on these like tangents and it's like, it's so fascinating to hear because, you know, even on to go, go back to like a, a long story arc and, and kind of hearing you kind of explain, hey, this open source, you know, freedom, it's kind of ironic because with like Sun Microsystems in Java, you know, in 2006, yeah. they, they also did a similar thing where they pushed to become open source. And I'm like, yeah. is, is, I mean, for you also, because that's personally in your, in your timeline, because this is kind of history repeating itself in a way. I mean, those are the deepest themes, you know, and I think the thing that's so amazing about, you know, like Sun was a really unique culture and company. You know, I think the biggest thing was open interfaces. They would compete on implementation. So in, in essence, they would ever since the beginning, by the way, like if you go all the way back to the origins of Sun, there was a huge contract for an entire TCP IP stack. Right. And there was a firm called Bolt, Burnack and Newman, BBN, and they basically mm -hmm. were competing for this TCP stack. And Bill Joyce, Sun founder, he was basically like, yeah, I don't like that. That's not very good. <laughs> right. So he basically he basically like went home and he rewrote the whole TCP IP stack for Unix. Right. And, and yeah. And then when he showed up with that, someone was like, how did you do that? And, and his answer was, I read the specification and then I wrote the implementation code. <laughs>
<laughs> like that like that was it that was all he had to say you know and it was just kind of like wow so that was the beginning like that was the Whoa. beginning of like some microsystems right uh, you know and that was a, a really crazy stuff really crazy stuff you know so that's and that was the birth of berkeley unix which kind of spawned out of AT&T Unix, you know, which of course became like the seed crystal for things like Linux and open source software and, you know, all of that stuff. So it's, yeah. Really, oh, wow. That was, the, the that was basically history. the, like the entry point of open source. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, obviously the operating system during the time of Microsoft monopoly was like a really fascinating war. And, you know, I, I think on the server, you know, Unix won in the form of Linux. Yeah. Right. So, so, you know, but, but that was such an amazing transformational event because, you know, Microsoft became an internet company is now open, right? Like the new Satya Nadella Microsoft, you know, changed its stripes. You know, it's a, it was not the Steve Ballmer Microsoft and you, you know, the, the company is, is worth, you know, many, many, many times more, you know, after it embraced open source. And, you know, embraced Linux. There's more instances of Linux running in Azure than there are just about anywhere else. It's, it's pretty Oh, amazing. wow. That's, <laughs> no, I love, I love you sharing that tidbit of history with us. Mika, I, I don't want to take up too much of your time. I know we had a great chat. And um, you know, I know you've got plenty of things to work on. I, I love to end on this note is like, what if there are any projects on the horizon, anybody we should be watching, of course, and tell us how we can follow you. Uh, yeah, yeah. Like that. I definitely encourage people to check out Yield Guild. That's an up and coming project. It's super ambitious and exciting. It solves really hard problems. Uh, another one that I think is up and coming is uh, Agoric. So Agoric is like a basically JavaScript based secure composable smart contract framework built on Cosmos Tendermint. That's super exciting. You know, uh, we think that there's a lot of excitement to be had around projects like Idle Finance, uh, you know, so the, the, we definitely have a lot of really exciting up and coming uh, projects to, to watch. So, you know, if you want to kind of keep track of some of my doings, uh, easiest central point would be Miko.com, M-I-K-O.com, just my website. Uh, all my socials are there, my Twitter handle and my show uh, on YouTube, uh, the Miko Bits show, it's all available. So, you know, please, please do engage.